Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In this episode, Father Adam covers the second, third, and fourth commandments, paragraphs 2142 to 2195. Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful. Grant us in the same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through the same Christ, our Lord. Amen. Name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So the second commandment, um, as we recall from um, Exodus and from Deuteronomy, if we remember the Ten Commandments are in Divine Revelation twice, in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, and the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5. So we hear, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And you have heard that it was said to men of old, you shall not swear falsely. But I say to you, do not swear at all. That's from Matthew chapter 5. We're reminded that in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord expands on the ten. He gives a, a more definitive interpretation of the Ten Commandments. So the name of the Lord is holy. So... There's a couple elements um, in this, in the Catechism's treatment of the second commandment. We would say there are three. The first, first is that the name of the Lord is holy. The second is that the taking of the name of the Lord in vain is to be avoided, is, to, is forbidden. And then um, the Catechism has a special little treatment on the Christian name. And that's particularly why I wanted to repeat Um, or at least review this section. So we're reminded, first of all, that, you know, the name of the Lord is revealed to us. Um, It was revealed to Moses, um, Yahweh, I am who am, um, at the burning bush. The name is also, um, the other, you know, the other name of God which is revealed is Jesus Christ. Um, You know, the angel Gabriel reveals that this is the name of God incarnate. Um, or is to be the name given to God incarnate. So part of this commandment is upholding the dignity of divine revelation and our ability to receive divine revelation. The, the catechism also reminds us that you know, the revelation of the name of God, although it does give us knowledge of his name, it also reveals, um, or at least um, maybe um, establishes his mystery as well, especially this name I am who am, um, this mysterious name of his being. So on the one hand, our respect for um, the name of the Lord is um, affirming the dignity, the value of divine revelation, and that God reveals himself. It's also, on the other hand, um, respecting the the dignity of God himself. Um, It's, in a sense, rendering justice to the divine mystery of God. So the the Catechism will say in 2146 that uh, the second commandment forbids the abuse of the divine name and of of course, the divine name of Jesus Christ, but also really um, the, the name of any holy person or holy sa- uh, any saint. It is It reminds us, of course, to avoid blasphemy, to avoid false oaths or um, oaths in the name of God um, for a magical use or a magical sense. Um, it holds us, if we do make promises, and... Um, paragraphs 2150-2154, they do establish, especially 2154, citing 2 Corinthians 1.23 and Galatians 1.20, it is permissible in certain cases to make 
promises or oaths in the name of God, especially like in a legal trial. Um, but this commandment binds us then to be honest, to be truthful, not to perjure ourselves, but also not to make false promises in his name. And um, to really use due discretion when making promises in the name of God. Um, and then the last part that I really wanted to hit on is paragraphs 2156 through 2159, which is the Christian name. So because God has revealed himself, revealed his name, and because by baptism we are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there's a certain dignity then that's communicated to us, that we receive our identity, our name, through Christ. Which is why, um, you know, on the one hand, and, and there is sort of a, a pastoral tension, we might say, in the Catechism. In paragraph 2156, parents are strongly encouraged to give their children a baptismal name, especially um, one from the name of a saint, um, of a disciple, of maybe an Old Testament figure, someone that exemplifies faith, you know, the life of faith and fidelity to the Lord. This, in, a, in some sense, gives us a patron saint the Catechism will also expound on. However, what's also interesting is, is 2158. So on the one hand, the Catechism says that it's really encouraged that children be named after saintly figures, you know. Uh, but on the other hand, 2158, it reminds us that God calls each one by name. Everyone's name is sacred. The name is the icon of the person. It demands respect as a sign of the dignity of the one who bears it. So it is a, re a reminder that, you know, even if maybe we don't have, if we're not named after a saint or some sort of holy figure, there is a certain dignity in our name nonetheless because that's the name that God calls us by. And ultimately in baptism that name is sanctified in some sense. Um, so there is, there's a little bit of a pastoral tension, you know, that, you know, maybe there will be a St. Autumn or, you know, a St., you know, um, Sierra or, you know, a St. Brigham or something like that, you know, at some point. Um, it's interesting also the Catechism says that, you know, we begin each day by making the sign of the cross in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So... The name of God sanctifies us. This is why we, we've had a special devotion, say, to the name of Jesus, Holy Name Church, for instance. Is, there's this idea that in the name of Christ we are, we are sanctified. Finally, it says um, in 2159, interesting enough, the name one receives is a name for eternity. Um, in the kingdom, the mysterious and unique character of each person marked with God's name will shine forth in splendor. So this, um, this honoring of the name of God, um, it, just, it doesn't just um, uphold the dignity of divine revelation and our ability to have access to it. It doesn't just uphold the mystery of God, but it also in some ways upholds our own, the dignity of our own identity. Which is why, you know, even though this commandment is so much about love of God, it, it can't be separated from love of, of, of others, love of neighbors. Is that in upholding the, the dignity of the name of God, we also uphold the dignity of the name of others. Now, not, you know, not that those names are divinely revealed, but, you know, there is a sense if, um, you know, every human being receives their identity in God. And so, therefore, there's this the sense where we need to respect the the identity which is signified by the name of of every of every man and woman so that launches us into the third commandment which is new uh, new material for today um, the third commandment um, we hear from 
Exodus 20, chapter 20, 8 through 10, Deuteronomy chapter 5, 12 through 15. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. The Lord um, gives us the authentic interpretation of this commandment as as the Logos, as the divine lawgiver himself, Jesus Christ, um, tells us in Mark chapter 2, 27 through 28, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the catechism divides the treatment of this third commandment into two parts. The first is about the Sabbath day itself, The second is the Lord's Day. And there's a distinction here between the Sabbath, which is revealed by God to Moses, Saturday, which is what we call the Sabbath, versus the Lord's Day, which in the fullness of revelation in Jesus Christ and in his resurrection is, of course, Sunday. So there's a distinction that the Catechism makes between the Sabbath day Saturday, and Sunday, the Lord's Day. Um, So this should kind of um, um, pique our curiosity as to, you know, what what is the difference between the two. So let's begin. First of all, you know, the the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, reveal the seventh day, Saturday, is the Sabbath, a solemn rest, holy to the Lord, we hear in Exodus chapter 31 through 15. So why is the Sabbath so significant? Well, first of all, it recalls creation itself, where God commands that on after the sixth day, on the seventh day, that he rested. So it reminds us that we're created and that we have a cooperation in the work of creation. Second, paragraph 2170 tells us that the Sabbath reminds us, it serves as a memorial of Israel's liberation from the bondage in Egypt. And we see this in Deuteronomy's um, um, description of the Ten Commandments that you shall remember that you were a servant in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out thence with mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So there's a connection with this Sabbath day to liberation as well, that we're liberated. 2171, it's also a sign of the irrevocable covenant. We see this especially in Exodus chapter 31 through 16. That the Sabbath is a sign of this covenant between God and Israel. It's interesting, um, in 2172, we hear this this very interesting line, which is kind of summarized, um, summarizing some of the prophets. It says, that the Sabbath is a day of protest against the servitude of work and the worship of money. It sort of stands out as our, um, uh, of our revolution, our act of, of protest against work and money and how they might dominate us. And that, that really, I think, neatly connects to the liberation, that it is an expression of liberation, the Sabbath is, that the Lord has liberated us from work from money. 2173, Jesus never fails to respect the holiness of the day, even though, as if you recall, when we went through the creed section, when it talks about Jesus and his passion, it begins with what were some of the issues of tension between Jesus and the, um, the Jewish establishment. And one of the things was, was his radical redefinition of the Sabbath that he interpreted the Sabbath in a new way, which they found offensive. So, But the Lord always respected the holiness of the day. However, he does give an authentic and authoritative 
interpretation, which we heard at the beginning of this um, article, beginning of the article on the third, on the fourth commandment. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Excuse me, for the third commandment. With compassion, Christ declares the Sabbath for doing good rather than harm, for saving life rather than killing it. So, you know, when we hear those stories of the Lord doing miracles on the Sabbath and people are upset, you know, the Lord's definitive interpretation is that the Sabbath is there to do good, in order to do good. So then that, um, so having summarized the, um, what we might say the, um, the institution of the third commandment um, in through Moses, you know, the, the Lord's revelation through Moses. We would say that, you know, from the book of Genesis that this need for rest, the, the, the Sabbath, is, is written on our hearts. It's part of the natural law that there is a need to rest. I think this is a very obvious thing. Um, you know, when we overwork, we see the effects of it, you know, that rest is somehow absolutely necessary to the human person. Um, so, but then we, we, the catechism moves to the Lord's Day because we already see in Christ's teaching that he has a new and definitive interpretation about the third commandment. Um, Already, as we said, you know, even though he followed the Sabbath, he worked miracles on the Sabbath, which the Jewish establishment saw as a violation of the Sabbath. So what is it? What is the fullness of this revelation about the Sabbath rest? Well, it happens by Christ's resurrection. So Christ rises from the dead on the first day of the week. Not the seventh, but the first. Or sometimes it's called the eighth day of the week. Um, But Sunday is the idea. And this is the Lord's day. For Christians, it has become the first of all days, the first of all feasts, the Lord's day. So Sunday fulfills the Sabbath. Sunday is expressly distinguished from the Sabbath which it follows chronologically every week. So Saturday is still, we can still call the Sabbath. Because one, I mean, even though Christ has fulfilled the Old Covenant and fulfilled the, the Third Commandment and given a definitive interpretation, he has not undone or obliterated the Old Covenant. You know, so we still have to see, we still have to call Saturday the Sabbath. It is still the Sabbath, but its fulfillment in Jesus Christ points to Sunday, where Christians ceremonially ceremonially observe um, observance replaces that of the Sabbath. So, um, on the one hand. Um, Saturday is still the Sabbath, but on the other hand, the obligation of rest and everything is now on Sunday because of Christ's resurrection. The Catechism goes on, The celebration of Sunday observes the moral commandment inscribed by nature in the human heart to render to God an outward, visible, public, and regular worship as a sign of his universal benefit to all. Sunday worship fulfills the moral commandment of the Old Covenant, taking up its rhythm and spirit in the weekly celebration of the Creator and the Redeemer of his people. So again, um, the Sabbath rest is not just some sort of, I think out of all the commandments, this one seems to be the most arbitrary or legalistic in the sense that, well, God's just telling us to take a day off. But even in this commandment, it we have to point that this is really built on into the human heart. It's inscribed into the human heart. It's part of the natural law, the need for a day of rest, to take a day off, to, to take this time. But not just to rest, but also to render worship to God. That there is a... A spon- you know, something in the human heart, something in human nature 
that moves us to acts of worship, to worship God. That even, I mean, you know, we, we talked about this at the very beginning of the catechism, that the first movement is that man seeks God. That there is something within man that makes him kapok day, that makes him capable of God, this desire for God. And so written in that heart is, is a desire to offer worship. Um, and that's the key. You know, the Sabbath is on the one hand rest, but on the other hand worship. So then the catechism switches, you know, so Sunday is this fulfillment of the Sabbath. And at the heart of this Sunday celebration is the Eucharist, the Sunday Eucharist. Sunday is the day, we hear this in, um, this is from Canon Law. Sunday is the day on which the Paschal Mystery is celebrated in light of the apostolic tradition and is to be observed as the foremost holy day of obligation in the universal church. So the idea that um, from the very beginning and early, early life of the church, Sunday has been set aside. And you see this in even the writings of the apostolic fathers. Justin, um, the apologist who's late 100s A.D., um, even in the Acts of the Apostles, we hear that they've got, they gather, you know, on this on this day. Hebrews, um, the letter to the Hebrews reminds the faithful um, not to neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but to encourage one another. This is Hebrews 10:25. So even at the time of the writing of the New Testament, there were people who were neglecting the gathering each week. So we are, part of being a disciple of the Lord is not just to take that day off, not just to um, render worship, but part of it's also the gathering of the Christian community in worship. There's an element of worship that is, that goes beyond, you know, that, that cannot be done in the private, private realm. And Hebrews, if, if one's looking for a, you know, some sort of biblical, you know, justification for the requirement that you have to come and, and render public worship, it's that passage from Hebrews uh, ta uh, chapter 10, verse 25. Um, while the Catechism talks about Sunday as the day of this public worship. It also mentions some of the solemnities that the church observes. Um, there's also a very early um, sermon. We don't know precisely the time. We don't even know who wrote it. But um, it's probably um, late 100s A.D., um, we hear that um, this day, Sunday, is given to you for prayer and rest. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. And then it's interesting. Um, I found in 2179, you know, in the midst of this, Sunday, this talk about the Sunday Eucharist as the fulfillment of the worship of the Sabbath, it mentions the parish, and it actually gives a definition of a parish. A parish is a def definite community of the Christian faithful, established on a stable basis with a particular church. The pastoral care of the parish is entrusted to a pastor as its own shepherd under the authority of the diocesan bishop. It, the parish, is the place where all the faithful can be gathered together for the Sunday celebration of the Eucharist. The parish initiates the Christian people into the ordinary expression of the liturgical life. So not only are we called to meet for public worship, um, but then the, the catechism also links it to this community that we belong to, to a parish community. Um, and that the primary purpose of the parish is to be this place for the celebration of the Sunday Eucharist. And it reminds us, I think, of the communal nature of the human person um, and the necessity of community and following 
following the Lord. The Catechism then talks about the Sunday obligation. So in addition to um, the Decalogue, which is revealed to Moses, the Ten Commandments revealed to Moses, um, which are and the th- this third commandment to take holy the Sabbath, which is ultimately written in the human heart and natural law. So it, this is both a revealed um, part of moral law, it's also a natural part of moral law. And then it finds its fulfillment in Christ and the resurrection on Sunday and the Sabbath. So, you know, this is part of the old covenant law fulfilled in Jesus Christ um, in, in the Eucharistic worship of Sunday. But then, on, in addition to that, the Catechism talks about that there's also an obligation placed upon us by the church. So those who have pastoral authority over us have also, in addition to this divine law, um, also placed an obligation upon us. And we call that the Sunday obligation. The precept of the church specifies the law of the Lord more precisely. On Sunday and other holy days of obligation, the faithful are bound to participate in the Mass. So there is um, this, this um, I think it was, a, it was a catechetical miscommunication at some point that, well, you know, um, the obligation to go to Mass is just, that's just a church rule. You know, and um, but it's grounded in the divine law and the divine and natural law, the the law revealed by God, fulfilled by Jesus Christ, and uh, written into the human heart. It's specified. The Church gives us, you know, kind of a, spe- a specification that we're, you know, this is a is lived by going to Mass on Sundays and holy days of obligation. So, and I think that, you know, we talked about earlier in this section, there's all these distinctions between different types of law. And when we, when we focus in those, we all have, we all have to realize that ultimately there is one law, the divine law, which manifests itself in all these other forms. And that all those other forms are somehow interconnected. We can get into a spirit of legalism that dismisses certain things um, under false uh, under false pretenses. Um, the fourth commandment, which we're going to cover next, I'm not, I'm not there yet, but we're getting there, um, will also help us, I think, to understand this because it deals with obedience to right rightful authority. Um, so. The Catechism talks a little bit more about this obligation. Um, It does mention um, the precept of participating in the Mass is satisfied by assistance at a Mass which is celebrated anywhere in a Catholic rite, either on the Holy Day or on the evening of the preceding day, what we call a vigil, vigil Mass. The Sunday Eucharist is the foundation and the confirmation of all the Christian practice. um, Of course, the Second Vatican Council will say the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. This is why we're obliged to go, unless excused for a serious reason. For example, illness, the care of infants, um, or if they are dispensed by their own pastor. Those who deliberately fail in this obligation commit a grave sin. So it is grave matter to miss Mass on a Sunday and a holy day of obligation. Participation in the communal celebration of the Sunday Eucharist um, is a public witness that we give. Public witness that we give. In addition to going to Mass, um, there are other kind of marks of this day. So at the heart of the, of the Sabbath rest, which is fulfilled in Sunday, is the worship due to God, 
um, in the Eucharist, the public celebration of the Eucharist. Um, but it also entails some other things. So, for instance, the Lord has given us this day um, to help us to enjoy rest and leisure, to cultivate our family, cultural, and social, and religious lives. So it is a time for us um, to refrain from work, to engage in worship, but also really to enjoy life, we might say, um, but all to do works of mercy and um, appropriate relaxation. So a couple different um, other points here is that in our celebration, in our leisure, in our Sabbath rest, we should, one, be, be mindful of those who cannot work or cannot rest because they have to in order to survive. Um, and that leads us to a certain work of you know, charity or mercy, which is fitting on Sunday. Um, it also is a time to be with the family. Um, and to really focus on family and and relatives. And then thirdly, so charity, family, and then also this sort of uh, prayerful pray, uh, time of prayer, of meditation. Now there are certain things, certain activities, certain work even, that is done on the Sabbath um, that is permitted, um, you know, but is not, we, we might say is permitted, but is not desired. You know, like if, if we could avoid it, we should avoid it. And those things would include traditional activities like sports or, you know, people who work in restaurants or social necessities like public services. So, you know, doctors and nurses, um, police officers, you know, first responders, those kind of things. However, their employers um, must keep in mind or should keep in mind to give them some time as, as kind of a recompense for. Nothing, in a sense, substitutes for the Sunday rest, but nonetheless, so it's not as if you can transfer your Sunday to another day, but you do, you know, employers should be mindful of giving their employees a rest. You know, a lot of people who work on Sundays take Monday off, you know, which is, is good. Um, and all of those activities that have been mentioned, you know, um, they should still try to fulfill the obligation of Sunday worship. And then in 2188, the uh, Catechism encourages us to really um, uphold the, um, the rest of the, the, the sort of the dignity of Sunday and, and to help that it be recognized, not just as a holy day, but as a legal holiday. Um, it is, in a sense, a share of our public witness. But I'd also say that, you know, it's not just... Um, a kind of a triumphalistic declaration that this is a Christian culture, but it it's also really an act of social justice um, that by upholding um, the the dignity of the Sabbath, what we're doing is we're really ensuring that um, those who who are morally obliged to rest, but also humanly need to rest, have a day to rest. Um, so, you know, I, th I think that, um, you know, in, in, a, in a, a pluralistic democracy like the United States, you know, it may seem problematic to take, you know, to make Sunday like a legal day off, you know, a, people who maybe push the, the separation of church and state. But in some sense, because this is part of the natural law, the need for rest, this is something which everyone needs. It's not just applies to Christians, you know. The, um, so this, and, and I would, um, just as we kind of um, talked about with 
the uh, second commandment, each of the commandments are really defending um, the dignity of something. And so the third commandment is really, um, I think, protecting the dignity of the human person's ability to render worship to God and of the basic need of rest, too. That part of the dignity of the human person is our ability to rest and and to enjoy the fruits of rest. We talk about the fruits of labor, of work, which are going to be um, protected with the commandment on stealing. But there's also the fruits of rest. So from leisure, from rest, comes the health of the family life, um, culture, um, you know, social development, and also it enhances our work as well. So all of these things are protected by the third, you know, the, the sort of the dignity of these things are protected by, um, by the third commandment. Now we switch to the fourth commandment. The catechism does a little um, transition. So chapter one was the first, second, and third commandments. Why? Well, because those, and they're sometimes called the first tablet of the law, they deal most explicitly with love of God. While the next tablet, the fourth through the tenth commandments, deal more explicitly with the love of of man or the love of neighbor. Now, they're both so intertwined, but nonetheless, that's sort of the distinction. So now the fourth commandment kind of leaps into what we call the second tablet or you know the 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 commandments that are most explicitly about love of neighbor so we're reminded um Exodus 20:12 Deuteronomy 5:16 honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God gives you um the Lord gives us a particular um kind of a particular renewal in this um, understanding in cha- in Luke chapter 251 that he himself was obedient to Joseph and to Mary. So then the catechism launches. Now, to begin with, I would say that the fourth commandment is upholding the dignity of this communal nature of the human person so that part of our dignity which this this commandment is ensuring is reflecting is witnessing to is that the human person is by nature communal that we're born into family um, that we are born into community um, and that this is who we are we are communal beings so the 2197, we're reminded that this opens up the second table, the second tablet of the Decalogue, um, and that it, you know, it seems, it seems to just, at its very basic, most basic level, appeal um, to, from the obligation of par- of children to their parents. Um, however, um, it really entails a whole lot more. In, and, and ultimately, because God is the source of all authority, God who is our Father, um, it ultimately also touches upon our love of God. So less, you know, there is a danger to kind of radically break the two tablets. That love of God is one thing and love of neighbor is the other. But they really are you know they're connected to each other it's why the Lord says you know what is the greatest commandment and he gives both of them they're inter- it's not that oh I can't pick which is better it's that they're so intimately connected that they're really one commandment um, it's expressed we hear in positive terms which is um you know, very rare among, you know, like in a sense it's proposing something to be done, you know, that you should honor as opposed to don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet, 
you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's uh, an interesting kind of uh, point in itself. The Catechism also says that this really, this commandment is the foundation of the, so, the church's social teaching or social doctrine. That all of that the church teaches about society, about how we live in society, the obligations of society, really flow from this commandment. So we could also say that in addition to this commandment kind of reflecting the, the dignity of the human person as a communal being, it also upholds the dignity of the family as the basic unit of human community. And also it upholds the dignity of society itself, of the civic order. Twenty one ninety nine goes on and says, even though um, it really is the obligation of children, it says at its base level that it's the obligation of children to parents, it's also vice versa of parents to children. Um, but even more so, be, it, it really kind of changes the way that we begin to see things in that we look at the human person now and I think this is actually in a later, later, um, later passage, but it's already here. It, this, this commandment applies to all human relationships in some sense, you know. So children to parents, parents to children, um, grandchildren to grandparents, you know, nieces and nephews to uncles and aunts. Um, but then even... Stepping out even farther from that, it expands um, students to teachers and by teachers to students or um, younger people to elders, um, elders to younger people, employees to employers, subordinates to leaders, citizens to their country. So it it really is is not just, I mean, the 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 child-parent relationship is sort of the core, but expands out like that. It also, in addition, you know, so from the, the perspective of the child to the parent or the student to the teacher or the citizen to the state, it also just in the same way of goes parents to students or parents to children, teachers to students, leaders to, or government to, citizens. This commandment is also unique, so not only is it a, a positive approach, you know, honor, do this, it also is the only one that has a reward built into it. The catechism really doesn't elaborate on why it does that, other than um, respecting this commandment provides, along with spiritual fruits, all these other kinds of fruits. Um, so then the catech that was just really the intro section. The catechism divides this commandment up into five different sections. The first one deals with just the family in God's plan. So this commandment is upholding the dignity of the family. Um, it defines kind of loosely what a family is. It's not a formal definition, but you could, I think, draw from paragraph 2202 a definition of family. A man and a woman united in marriage together with their children form a family. This institution is prior to any recognition by public authority, which has an obligation to recognize it. So the family really um, is prior to the state. This is something, um, you know, this is something I think very countercultural, which the church proposes, that the family is prior to the state. Now, it doesn't seem that countercultural if you've grown up in a family. Um, but if you, if you just look in general at how society is structured, you would begin to think that families really aren't that relevant. 
Um, the Catechism also says the members of the family are equal in dignity for the common good of its members and of society, the family necessarily has manifold responsibilities, rights, and duties. So what what is kind of specific about the Christian family in particular? What does Jesus Christ bring to family that maybe is is unique? Well, a cup I, I would say the catechism points to three three different things. The first is um, that that the family is really a domestic church, that it's the the basic realization of ecclesial communion, that at its heart the family is a community of faith, hope, and charity. Um, second is that the um, family is a communion of persons, which points to the communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore, at its heart, the Christian family is has a, an evangelizing and missionary task. It, has, it must witness to this. And then thirdly, the family, in the Christian sense, is a privileged community, which is called to... Sh- to a sharing of thought and common deliberation by the spouses, as well as their eager cooperation as parents in the children's upbringing. So at the heart of um, kind of what is unique in the Christian vision of family is that there's an interior harmony, um, a sharing of thought and common deliberation by the spouses. Which is somewhat is culturally, um, I mean, maybe even in Christian cultures, we don't think of the family as, you know, maybe in some Christian cultures, the father just imposes decisions or the mother just imposes decisions. Um, but in the real Christian vision, there is a, sen- a sense of sharing of thought and common deliberation. Point two, which the catechism wants to make about the family, is um, its connection to society. So we've kind of defined the Christian vision of family. Now, how is it connected to the larger society? Well, first, the family is the original cell of social life. This is really where society begins, is within the context of the family. It's where we're initiated into life um, and into in society. Second, um, it's really through the family um, that we begin to provide help to others. Really, that that we do our work of charity. And that is, you know, I think in taking care of the young and the old, the sick, the handicapped, and the poor, even within the family. Um, And so the idea is, who has responsibility for taking care of the vulnerable? The first one who has responsibility for taking care of the vulnerable is the family, is their family. So... The society has to respect that kind of basic obligation of the family. Sometimes the family does not recognize that, but that's why the catechism is here, is to remind us these things. Um, the, the next point is that um, the family must be helped and defended by appropriate social measures. So society is there to help support the family. If families can't fulfill certain responsibilities, then the larger society or other social bodies have the duty of helping them and supporting them. This is really the principle of subsidiarity. 
which we talked about in the social teaching of the church. So, you know, that responsibility for doing things should be to the lowest, the lowest level that can do the job. Then the uh, catechism goes on that um, at times um, this, the civil society, the, the larger society, needs to, um, to protect and support marriage and family. And specifically the catechism in 2211, it ticks off um, about seven, it looks like seven, basic freedoms, basic, um, you know, rights, we might say, of the family that society needs to protect. So um, they need, the society needs to establish the freedom to establish a family, have children, and bring them up in keeping with the family's own moral and religious convictions. Second, um, society needs to protect, um, to protect the stability of the marriage bond and the institution of family. So one, the church establishes basically, or society is to, uh, is to protect the freedom to start a family. Second, to protect the very definition of marriage and family. Third, um, they are to pro protect the freedom to profess one's faith. As the family is this domestic church, it's the basic place where children are raised and where the faith is communicated. Number four, the society also has to ensure the right to private property, free enterprise, um, access to work and housing, and the right to immigrate. And that's um, with an E, immigrate. Um, I don't know if it's what the... Uh, my Appalachian accent may not permit me to distinguish, but em emigrate versus immigrate. So that is to leave, emigrate. Um, number five, um, society is to ensure the keeping with the country's institution, the right to medical care, assistance for the aged, and family benefits. So society is there because families often can't do those necessary works of charity, which they're obliged to do. The society is there to help them to do that when they can't. And that means a right to medical care in keeping with the country's institutions. So, and that, I think, is a, an important distinction. So the catechism holds that, yes, there is a right to medical care, um, in regards to the country's institutions. So that, that leads to prudential judgment as to how um, the society ensures a right to medical care. Also, um, this would be number six, the society must protect the security and health of the family, um, especially with respect to the da dangers like drugs, pornography, and alcoholism. And then finally, um, society is to protect the freedom to form associations with other families and to have representation before civil authority. In addition um, you know, to all this, all this stuff about family, the, cate the catechism reminds us that this fourth commandment also really it illuminates um, our relationship with others in society. Um, because, you know, the importance of the family, and when we, when we emphasize the, the importance of the family, it doesn't just lead us to protecting the institution of the family and what the family means. It actually gives us a new way of looking at the, the world. In, and when we emphasize family, what it does is it helps us to begin to look at everyone else within a a family connection. So, for instance, we see the value and dignity of our cousins. Um, we see, um, you know, the you know distant relations or other citizens um, as children of this country. 
or other human beings as you know children of our father um, in, of of God or you know especially the baptized because they're sons and daughters of our heavenly father as brothers and sisters so it's it's key then that the um, that we treat the neighbor not as a unit in human collective but as someone who by their origins deserve particular attention and respect that we really are all from the same family we begin to see everyone as members of the same family and that then grounds how we understand other human beings as persons. So the catechism here is it's proposing a very beautiful, I think a very beautiful worldview that if we are really focused on the family and the importance of the family, not just as some sort of political agenda, but really in our lives, if we're really living the, the fourth commandment, it, it really changes the way that we look at the rest of the world, which is why maybe... Just why maybe the Lord put the fourth commandment at the fourth, in its fourth place. Is, it is this bridge that helps us to see the other, the other ones on the second tablet. That if we really take serious honoring our parents and living the full extent of the family life, then we can avoid violating the other commandments because we see them in this sense of the family. The um, catechism then talks about duties of family members. So there are certain duties which everyone has to each other. Um, filial piety and gratitude of children to parents. Uh, parents are to be grateful for the gift of life of their children. Um, filial respect and docility. Um, However, if a child is convinced in conscience that it would be morally wrong to obey a particular order, they must not do so. Um, the fourth commandment reminds grown children of their responsibilities towards their parents. Um, it also governs the relationship between brothers and sisters. Um, and then also among Christians who are all brothers and sisters by baptism. Um, it also obliges parents to their duties, um, that parents have an obligation in the education of their children. It's not just in this fecundity, we say, in, in having children, but also in educating children to see their children first and foremost as children of God, and as human persons. Parents are obliged to create a home where tenderness, forgiveness, respect, fidelity um, are present, an education in virtue. They have, parents have a grave responsibility to go give good example to their children. Parents have an obligation to evangelize their children, to witness to Jesus Christ, to proclaim what Christ has done for them, to enable them to encounter Christ. They also need to continue this in the education of the faith. Um, parents have a mission of teaching their children to pray and to discover their vocation as children of God. Um, unfortunately, you know, and it's, 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 it's interesting that in the life of the church even, even in the life of the church, we neglect the dignity of the family unit because we outsource the education in the faith to, say, Catholic schools or to PSR programs. And it's ultimately parents who have to be the first teachers and not just in the sense that they taught them the Our Father when they were four, but that they are the ones who are really going through the entire catechism with their kids. Parents must provide for the physical and spiritual needs of their children. Parents have the right to choose a school for them. Um, 
children have a right and a duty to choose their own profession and state of life, though, the catechism says. Um, the family is connected to the kingdom. Of course, we hear those, you know, those challenging words from the Lord that, um, you know, reject father, reject mother, you know, follow me. But it's the reminder it's a reminder that our first obligation is to follow Christ and an invitation to see that our first family is God's family. And ideally, the Christian family reflects that first family. Then the Catechism talks about our obligations to the civil duties, just to kind of wrap that up. Um, Civil authority ultimately derives from God himself. Uh, Civil authority cannot command or establish what is contrary to the dignity of persons or to the natural law. Um, It's meant to be an outward expression of a just hierarchy of values and should practice justice. Um, Political authorities must respect the fundamental rights of human persons, and political rights are attached to citizenship, can and should be granted. But citizens also have an obligation, um, multiple obligations. Um, One is to respect the authority which um, has been placed above them, As citizens, they have a duty um, to civil authorities. Um, These include um, paying taxes, exercising the right to vote, so we have a moral obligation to vote, Um, and when called upon to defend one's country. Nations um, are to welcome foreigners in search of security and the means of livelihood, 2241, paragraph 2241. Public authorities should see to it that the natural right is respected that places a guest under the protection of those who receive him. However, connected to that also is that um, for the sake of the common good, public authorities may make the exercise of the right to immigrate subject to various juridical conditions. So we have to acknowledge a fundamental human right to immigrate, that's to come into a country. However, the civil authority also has to protect the common good. The Catechism says that that um, right to immigrate must especially be respected by those wealthier countries. The Catechism in 2242 talks about, at times, a refusing of obedience to civil authorities when the demands are contrary to those of an upright conscience. So at times there may be um, where we have to reject that. And the catechism even opens up the possibility that there may be armed resistance to civil society. But five conditions, and these are the same five traditional principles used for just war, and um, one might even apply self-defense, personal self-defense. And that is, there's a certain grave and prolonged violation of our fundamental rights. Two, All other means of redress have been exhausted. Three, such resistance will not provoke worse disorders. Four, there is a well-founded hope of success. And fifth, it is impossible reasonably to foresee any better solution. And then finally, the catechism ends as we are ending... um, by talking about the political community and the church um, in a sense that they kind of work together. Um, the, the, the civil society in some ways needs the church because the church has this divine revelation um, which is sort of a, um, an assist to the civil authority 
the civil society in making their judgments and in making decisions based on inspired truth. Um, however, the church, and um, this is to a point that was earlier um, raised, I think, in the social order about the need for democracy. Um, the Catechism in 2245 does say that the church, because of her, of her commission, her divine commission and competence, is not to be confused in any way with the political community. So on the one hand, we shouldn't um, try to apply political principles to the church, but also we shouldn't um, just confuse the church, you know, with a, a part of the civil authority. You know, she is distinct um, from the civil authority. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless, and have a great day.